Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, we're going to finish out this chapter this morning, beginning in verse 24, and we'll study down through verse 35, the end of the chapter. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome those who join us via our live stream. Each week we have many that join us in that way, and we just want to say thank you uh, for worshiping with us today, and also Reach Church DeSoto and the venue uh, right down the hall. Before we get into God's word this morning, many of you have maybe seen the reports on the news and uh, other areas um, about revival that has uh, begun or is taking place at Asbury University. And um, I'm, you know, I'm not here to say I've been there, I've not been there. I, I, I don't know exactly what's occurring. Um, but, but when it comes to revival in this, this nation, I'd rather be hopeful than skeptical. And so uh, I'm hopeful uh, we've seen that it's already begin, beginning to spread to um, other campuses, um, Sanford University and other places, Cedarville. There's, there just seems to be a movement of God, and, and uh, I've been praying for this uh, for virtually all my ministerial life, um, and uh, I'm hopeful. And, uh, and when it comes to movement of God, I said this a couple weeks ago in that line from Hoosiers, you don't want to get caught watching the paint dry. You know, I, 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 I don't want to miss out. Um, and so I, I just thought it'd be good for us to pray this morning, to pray for uh, revival in our own hearts. Um, listen, I, I, I can grow very cynical about our day that we're living in. And if I'm not careful, I'll begin to think that, that uh, revival couldn't occur. Listen, nothing is impossible with God. But there is evidence. We've got partnerships with collegiate ministries like um, Christian Challenge and Student Mobilization. Listen, God is on, at work in, in our college campuses. There's no doubt in my mind. And uh, so I, I just want to pray this morning, um, seeing the reports of those from people that I have heard from personally that have been there and seen students just gathering 24 hours a day. You're talking about now, I think they're going on like 11 or 12 days of continual Prayer is student-led. There's no great personalities or preachers. It's just student and faculty just praying, preaching, and singing. And uh, the lines outside of the building are enormous. People just wanting to get in. And uh, I just felt like we'd be remiss this morning if we didn't stop and pray. And, and I'm going to, we do this sometimes here at Lenexa Baptist. If you're new to us, we don't want anybody to feel awkward, even those of you that are longtime members of Lenexa Baptist. But I'm going to get on my knees to pray, and if you want to, there's nothing about being on our knees that makes our prayers more significant to the heart of God, but it's a demonstration of, in an outward way of our inward condition of humility before God. So if you just want to come down here to the front and pray at the altar, I'm going to invite you to come. If you want to get out into a row or an aisle or wherever, um, but I believe God's doing something, and I, I don't want to miss it. Um, and so I'm just going to get on my knees here. You move out wherever you want to get to. If you want to stay in your seat, if you're not able, we don't want anybody to feel awkward. That's not what this is about. But I just thought if I'm going to get on my knees, I invite you to as well. This altar is open. Let's just get on our knees before the Lord and ask him to do a work in our hearts. Father, as we come before you this morning, we come before you humbly. We, we get on our knees. Not because we think you hear us anymore because we're on our knees, but because we just, we want to get low before you. 
we want you to know that we humble ourselves before you. And God, we want you to do business in our lives. We, we pray for revival, but, but we ask for revival to begin in us. And so we, we humble ourselves today and we confess our sin. God, forgive us for our materialism. Forgive us for our spiritual laziness. Forgive us for being more concerned about our own lives and our own kingdoms rather than yours. Forgive us for being like the people of Israel in the days of Haggai when the people were more concerned with building their paneled houses than they were about being about your business. God, forgive us. God, we repent this morning. We want to change the direction of our lives. We want to see you move in our nation, but before you move in our nation, you've got to move in us. Forgive us for the idols that we've placed above you or even alongside of you. God, give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. We pray for the movement that we see occurring at Asbury. And God, there's so much we don't know, but we're hopeful. And God, we pray that revival would sweep across this nation. That all across this nation, even this morning in pulpits, all across this nation, the truth of the gospel would be declared and men and women would be convicted of sin and they'd turn towards you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move in our church. God, convict us of sin, discipline us, do whatever is necessary. But God, don't let us get outside of your will. God, we praise you today. You're sovereign, you're holy, you're far more holy than we can possibly imagine, and yet you love us. Jesus, we praise you because you are God and you came for us. Holy Spirit, we praise you because you are God and you have convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We, we thank you that you're still working in our hearts today. God, we want to die to ourselves. May we be crucified with Christ and yet live. Not ourselves, but Christ in us. And Father, we pray that you would fill us. Spirit, have your way in our lives. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Many of you have been praying. I encourage you to do so. It's exciting to see what God is doing. Um, so many exciting things occurring right now in our nation. And uh, be hopeful, be prayerful. Well, we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 15 this morning. Um, this is not a, a lovey-dovey feel-good passage. Um, we're going to see a king court-martialed, and we're going to see a Gentile executed. Um, there's some parts of God's character and his nature that we really don't like to talk about. I think sometimes we're guilty of making God out to be who we want him to be and uh, not who he really is. And this passage this morning 
demonstrates parts of God's character and his nature that aren't pleasant, but just because they're not pleasant to us doesn't mean they're any less real. This is who God is, and we need to see this this morning. So with that in mind, let me just pray for us once again, and we'll dive into this text. Father, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning. We know the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our hearts through the proclamation of God's word so that we would all, all of us would be changed this morning, drawn closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 24, you'll remember Saul has been caught in his disobedience and his sin. Uh, He's tried to excuse it. He's tried to justify it. He said, uh, we've disobeyed, but we're going to (laughs) worship. We're going to worship in our disobedience. And uh, you'll see there that Samuel says to Saul, um, God wants your obedience infinitely more than he wants your sacrifice. That what matters to God is your heart, a heart to obey. And so having been confronted, we see Saul's response in verse 24. It says, then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, at first glance, this looks really good. Uh, At first glance, we see this and say, boy, those are the words we've been waiting to hear. We wanted Saul to come to a place of confessing his sin, admitting his error, But even in these words, there's some red flags that give us concern that his heart's not really genuine. First of all, he only comes to a place of confession after his back's against the wall. (laughs) He only comes to a a place of confession when he's been caught red-handed, and there's no way he can deny his own sin and disobedience. And so only because of some outward pressure will he be brought to a place where he'll openly confess his sin. And I want to say this, that it's not that true repentance, genuine repentance, can't occur through outward pressure. Um, We see this, in fact, in in David's life. David, in his sin with, with Bathsheba and all the sins leading up to that, never on his own openly confessed his sin and admitted it before God. It wasn't until he was confronted by Nathan and Nathan says to him, you're the man. Only when he's confronted and there's no way out does David finally come to a place of confession and it brings about true repentance. In fact, Psalm 51 is is a psalm of David after he's been confronted of that sin. And if you want a good picture of true and genuine repentance, read Psalm 51. In fact, I'll reference it many times this morning. And so it's not that outward pressure can't bring about true repentance uh, and genuine faith. But I would say this. It's always best when our repentance and our confession is uh, brought out through an inward conviction rather outward than outward pressure. Um... Meaning that as we walk with the Lord, the prayer is that we would feel conviction as we spend time with God and in his word and in prayer. And he would convict us of sin and we'd go to God and we'd deal directly with God regarding our sin. And then if we've harmed anybody else, we go to them afterwards. Um, That's why I say accountability is great. Accountability partners in your life are great. But listen to me, the greatest accountability that you have in your life is reading the word of God by means of the Holy Spirit because the one person you can't fool in this world is God. And so the prayer is that as we're just walking with God and spending time in his word, and often that's my prayer as I'm reading God's word in my morning, is God reveals sin in my life that needs to be removed. 
that um, the motivating factor behind my, my sin and my repentance would be an inward conviction and not somebody having to come and confront me. Those are extreme situations. So it's not being birthed out of an inward conviction. It's outward pressure that's brought him to this moment. And even in his confession, what you see here, he's, he's still trying to justify his sin. He says, because I feared the people. It's another excuse. It's another means of justification. Now listen, true repentance means you get to a place where there are no more excuses. You fully own up to your sin. You stop trying to explain it away. You, you, you stop trying to justify it. I mean, we've all known people in our life that they're confronted with this sin. They're caught red-handed and they, yeah, I was wrong, but it wasn't really my fault. This other deal was going on and you don't, ever heard this? You don't really know the full story. If you knew the full story, you know, I really wasn't guilty. No, listen, you were guilty. And, and I don't really believe that we ever move forward in true repentance until we get to a place where we say to God, I ain't got no excuses. I got no leg to stand on. I'm guilty and I've sinned against the holy God. You don't see that in Saul. You see a man who's only brought to a place of confession when he's backed his pinned against the wall. And even in that, he's still seeking to justify his sin based on the people who have pressured him. Well, look on in verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Notice who he's talking to here. It's important to recognize that he's not going directly to God. He's going to Samuel. This is important to remember. We, when confronted with our sin, we, it's, not that, it's not that Saul hadn't sinned against Samuel. He had. And, and, and I fully understand that to some extent Samuel was a representation of God in his life. But listen, when we've been sinned, the first person that we have to deal with is God. We deal with God primarily because that's primarily against whom we've sinned. And then you work outwardly in concentric circles as to the persons that you've, been, that you've offended due to your sin or you've sinned against. But we start with God. In fact, that's Psalm 51. David, when he's confronted with his sin, what does he say? Against you Talking to God, because you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David makes no excuse and he says, God, I've sinned against you and you alone. Now, had David sinned against other people? Yes, he had. But the point is, in that moment, nobody else mattered except God. The heart of David in his prayer of confession is, God, you can take everything away from me. You can take away my kingship. You can take away my authority. You can take away everything, but I can't lose you. David's heart was the only thing that matters to me now having been confronted with my sin is ensuring that I still have a relationship with you, God. That's true repentance. That's true confession. But we, we never, you never see Saul go directly to God. You see him go to Samuel. And then you move on in verse 26. It says, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You'll notice here that he's going to Samuel and Samuel directs his attention back to who? The Lord. To some extent, I think that what Samuel is saying to Saul is you don't need to be talking to me. You need to be talking to God because it's his word You'll notice earlier, Samuel said, I have transgressed your command, talking to Samuel. And Samuel is essentially saying to him, no, you disobeyed and rejected me. You rejected God. You need to talk to him. 
He's the one you've rejected. And now God has rejected you from being king. It's not that God has completely rejected uh, Saul in that there's no opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. I believe there still is, although we're not going to see that. There's still an opportunity for forgiveness, and, but there is a point now where he has transgressed the Lord to such an extent that he will no longer have the opportunity to lead and to be king over his people. It's an important reminder, especially for position, people in positions of leadership and even more specifically in the church, that there are things that we can do that disqualify us from serving in positions of leadership in the church. Is the heart of Paul when Paul said, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul lived with a very real reminder that he could disqualify himself from serving the Lord in that capacity. And now uh, Saul has disobeyed, rejected, snubbed his nose, sinned with the high hand that God has said, you sir are fired. You're done. Because I can't use a guy in leadership who will not obey me. And then in verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. This to me is the height of arrogance. Within the passage, this is the full demonstration of the arrogance that now exists in Saul's heart. What have we seen throughout the book of Samuel thus far? God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a proud man. Now, he didn't start proud, did he? He started out, who am I to rule over Israel? He started out hiding amongst the baggage. But now that he's found himself in a place of position of leadership and authority, the one thing he doesn't want to lose is his authority. He's been intoxicated by a position of power, and now he is ready to retain that power by all means necessary, including grabbing hold of the prophet Samuel. In essence, what Saul is saying is, how dare you turn away from me? It's Saul saying to Samuel, you need to realize something. I'm king and I'm charged, not you. Boy, that is the height of arrogance. Because if there's one thing that you see in the Old Testament, it's that the state, the government, does not lay its hands on God's man. You remember Elijah? Uh, they, they send a detachment of soldiers to get Elijah. And um, Elijah says, if I, they said, oh, man of God, come down for your hill. And he says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And they start to come get him. And what, guess what happens? Fire comes down and consumes him. They send another detachment of soldiers. Oh, man of God, come down for your hill. If I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Fire comes down and consumes him. The third group says, can we please make a suggestion? Would you mind? If you, if you don't mind too much, would you mind coming down? The message there is you don't touch God's man. The state in God's eyes does not have authority over his man. You remember, that's why when Jesus is crucified, the first thing he says from the, from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Many commentators have stated that if Jesus hadn't prayed that prayer, the entire universe would have been consumed. Why? Because you don't touch God's man. And the state has laid its hands on God's son to kill him. And the only thing that saved them is the mercy and the prayer of Jesus Christ on the cross. So here is Saul at the height of arrogance saying, how dare you turn away from me? And he grabs hold of his robe and it tears. There's a powerful picture here too as well. As I was saying, this is just personal conviction in my life that um, here's a man who his primary concern is retaining his position of power. He cares more about keeping his power than he does care about keeping his relationship with God. 
And it was just this reminder to me that great success in God's kingdom is not achieved by clinging to the things of this world. It is achieved by letting go, dying. It, just ask you this morning, because there's only, as Christians, there's only one thing that we cling to at all cost. And what is it? It's Jesus. The only thing that we say to God we will not let go of is Jesus. Everything else we hold like this, don't we? Um, can I just ask you this morning, is there anything you're clinging to more than you're clinging to Jesus? Oftentimes the things that we're clinging to are often the areas of our life that God will touch. And he'll ask us to give up. You see, in service to Christ, you can cling to nothing as dear to yourself because Jesus Christ, in service to you, didn't cling to anything as dear to himself. In other words, Jesus won't ask you to give up any more than he gave up. And he gave it all up. Here is a man who the one thing he's clinging to, it it, kind of appears to me as he's like, my sin is no big deal, but I can't lose my power. And the sinful condition of his heart is exposed. In verse 28, Samuel takes advantage of the situation, said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Again here, it's an official declaration. Now he may continue in his reign in some capacity, but at this moment, God has said to King Saul, it's official, you're fired. God is going to officially remove his hand from Saul's life. And he's going to go, as we're gonna see in the next chapter, in chapter 16, he's gonna anoint David, a man who is better than you. In what way is David better than Saul? It's not that David was any less a sinner. They were both sinful. In fact, we already talked about this. In many ways, you could make an argument that David's sins of murder and adultery were actually greater in degree or consequence than the sins of Saul. But both of them disobeyed the word of God. Both of them rejected God. The difference was David had an attitude of repentance. See, the better Christian is not the one who's less sinful. It's the one who recognizes their sin and turns to God in repentance and faith and keeps walking forward. Verse 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Interesting title here given to God. uh, Samuel calls him the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel. I believe the best of my knowledge, I say this, only t- it's only time this title is used for God in all the Old Testament. But what is the point that, that, uh, that Samuel's trying to make as he uses that title? Because that's what I was asking me. Why use this title? It's a very unusual title. Why would he use this title? Because he's reminding Saul that the glory of Israel is God, it's not you. In other words, what he's saying to, to Saul is, Saul, you're not that important. I think Saul's thought is, well, boy, this nation's gonna fall apart if it doesn't have me as its king. And Saul is, or Samuel's reminding Saul, listen, <laughs> the glory of this nation is not a king, it's not its economy, and it's not its military. The glory of this nation is God. What makes us great is God. Uh, you know, is, you always gotta be careful about practically applying these things to the church, but in many ways, I think it's so important that we remember that the glory of the church is Christ. 
What makes us great is not any personality, it's not any program, it's not a building. The glory of the church is Christ. The glory of Israel was in its God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. God made them great. And so they can, they can have a king, they can lose a king. God can put one man in, he can take one man out. It doesn't matter as long as they're faithful to God. That was all that mattered. So Saul, you're not that important. And the glory of Israel is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. Not only, Saul, are you not that important, but Saul, you're not in charge. You don't get to dictate what God does. In other words, God has made up his mind. You have transgressed him, and you're fired, and you're done. And you're not going to change his mind. That this is what God's sovereign will is. And you can either get on board with what he's going to do or not. What you would love to see at this moment is Saul get on board with David. But that's not what he's going to do either. We'll see as we move forward. He's not going to say, well, now David's God's anointed. I see it. Samuel's anointed him as king. No, he's going to try to kill David. He's going to try to run a spear through him. You see a man who is always snubbing his nose at God. I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what God says. Well, Samuel reminds him here, you're not that important. You're not in charge. And then he says in verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Boy, again, as we move through this, he starts out, I have sinned. I have transgressed. You say, way to go. That was often Saul's MO is that he kind of started out well. He'd obey a little bit and it sounded really good. And then you read further and you're like, man, here he goes again. And the more you read about this, the more disappointed you come. Because again, what we see here, what is he worried? He's worried more about his reputation before the people than he is his relationship with God. Listen to me. So many people, this is what I thought. I wrote it out on the side of my Bible. How many people are going to miss heaven because they were more concerned about what people think than concerned about what God thinks? Listen, the number one opinion that matters is what does God think about you? And so here he is, again, concerned about his reputation, but will not confront his sin. And notice that your God, these are my people and it's your God. Boy, those are dangerous words. Uh, There's not an indication here that he realizes that these are God's people, not his people. And again, There's no personal relationship with God. It's your God, not my God. Well, we move on. Verse 31, so Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Uh, Last night I shared with the Saturday night crowd that I was like, I don't know why. The question was, I don't really know or understand. I thought about it all week. I don't really know or understand why Samuel went back with him. Because earlier he said what? I'm not going back with you. And now all of a sudden he's going back with you. And some of the commentators stated that uh, maybe it was because uh, now that Saul had gone rogue, he didn't know what Saul could, could do or maybe that he would do because later on he's gonna try to kill David and some commentators speculated that maybe he was afraid that Saul would try to kill him if he didn't go back with him. But you know, uh, Samuel doesn't strike me as a guy who was fearful of people. Uh, he gonna pick up a sword and hew Agag to pieces. He doesn't strike me as a real fearful guy. You know, I don't think he's worried about Saul. Why would he go back with him? Uh, after the service, David Woodall was talking to me, and he gave me his interpretation, and I like it, so I'm going to go with it. So I, and I told him I'd give him credit. I didn't want to take it myself. But he said this. He said, you know what I think? I think Samuel went back with him because Samuel had unfinished business. And the unfinished business is we got a guy we got to deal with. And if Saul won't do it, then I guess I'm going to have to. 
And that's where we're going to have to bring judgment upon Agag. And guess what else I think? I think Samuel knew, Saul, you need to watch this. Because the message to Saul is, listen, it doesn't matter if you're an Amalekite or an Israelite. If you don't repent of your sins, this is what happens. You face the judgment of God. And so Samuel goes back with him. In verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. It's interesting. uh, Saul offers an apology. Samuel offers a sacrifice. Samuel's going to do what Saul should have done. Another evidence that there's no genuine repentance because if, if there would have been genuine repentance, what you would have expected is Saul to say, I'm gonna go back and make things right. God, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Please be merciful. Please be gracious. And then we would have seen a 180 and he said, I'm gonna go take care of this unfinished business. I'm gonna get rid of this guy that you told me to get rid of and I'm gonna give everything back to you just as I should have done initially. I'm gonna go make it right, but you don't see that. Now you see Samuel having to do what Saul should have done. And you see this passage and you see this guy hewed to pieces. And that, listen, it's meant to cause us, as we read this, it's meant to cause us to kind of push back from the table and make our stomach turn a little bit and say, wow, what a holy God we serve. This is there intentionally. Agag, bring old Agag over. And Agag says, you know what? I talked to Saul, it's all good. I ain't worried about nothing. You know, that whole deal of the Amalekites and the Israelites is a long time ago. God hadn't judged me yet. God's not gonna judge me. It's forgotten. God forgot about it. God hadn't forgotten. Agag makes the same mistake that a lot of sinners make. And here's the mistake. People start to think that just because God hasn't judged that he won't judge Does God always immediately judge sin? No, he doesn't. Does God always judge sin? Yeah, he does. Yes, he does. God does not forget. The message here is, it is plain and simple. Every sinful act, every evil deed, every sinful thought will be judged by God write it down take it to the bank we don't like to talk about this these are the aspects of God that we don't like talking about at parties but we need to hear this that God is a loving gracious God but he's also a just God and he punishes sin and listen you only got two options everybody in this room sin will be judged you only got two options either Either you are trusting in Jesus Christ who absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. Just because we've trusted in Christ doesn't mean that our sin wasn't judged. It was judged. Oh, believe me, it was judged. Ask Jesus if it was judged because the full cup of God's wrath towards our sin, not his, our sin was placed on his shoulders when he died in our place. 
He bore the wrath and the judgment for our sin. And you've only got two options. You're either trusting in Christ and his shed blood and his atoning sacrifice and the judgment of God poured out on him or you will face the wrath of God on your own. But you will be judged. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. Uh... God judged in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve. They sinned, there was judgment. Days of Noah, God judged the world. God judged Lucifer and the angels. Uh, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged Tyre and Sidon. Uh, God judged Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, (laughs) Tribulation, God's gonna judge the world. Christ's return with the raptured church, God's gonna judge unbelieving Israel. Millennial kingdom, at the end of that, there'll be a rebellion and God will judge that rebellion and then this heaven and earth is gonna come down, it'll melt with intense heat, God is gonna start over in the new heavens and earth and then there'll be a great white throne judgment and it says that even the sea will give up its dead, meaning that you can't say, well, I died at sea and shark ate me up and so I'm good, I escaped the judgment. No, those people brought up too. Resurrected to eternal judgment. No one, listen to me, no one escapes. I don't want anybody to be misled here. Two options. You're either trusting in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, to atone for your sin, or you will face the judgment and the wrath of God on your own. It's been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And as the author of Hebrews says, it's a, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So be warned. That's the message with Saul. Listen, and Agag. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite king or an Agagian Amalekite. There's only one hope you have, and it's trust in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you reject him and you will not repent, you will be judged. We read these last two verses, and it says in verses 34 and 35, then Samuel went to Ramah, but, Samuel, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. God is gonna officially take his hand off of Saul's life. Saul is in a place of outright rejection. If you wanna know my personal opinion, it's that Saul is apostate. I believe that if you want a New Testament passage for this, it's Hebrews chapter six. This is a guy who tasted of the Lord. He experienced some of God's goodness and his grace, but he never truly repented of his sins and he never had a personal relationship. He was apostate. He snubbed his nose at God and he found himself in a place of hardness of heart and he will not repent, and he will not turn, and he will face the judgment of God. A lot of people ask me, did Saul fall away from God? Listen, my response is, Saul never knew God to begin with. We don't see any evidence that this guy ever truly had a personal relationship with God. We never see him truly repent. Listen, the mark of God's elect, the mark of those who are truly saved, those who are Christians, there's three defining marks that you'll always find in their life. Number one, faith. Salvation comes by faith alone. Saul had a lot of successes, And he had a lot of outward expressions of religion, but he never has a heart of true faith. 
He never goes directly to God and deals with his sin. You don't ever hear the guy calling out to God for forgiveness of sins. You don't ever hear the heart that you'll find in the heart of David. You will not find the heart of him what you see in the heart of an Abraham or even a Samuel. You never see a guy who genuinely places his faith in Christ after confessing his sin. The second mark is repentance. Defining mark of God's people is that they have a repentant heart meaning that they change. Repentance literally means uh, change your mind. Metanoia, change mind. Change your mind. Meaning repentance is not just words. It's not tears. You can come to this altar and cry a river of tears. Listen to me, God's not impressed. What God wants is a heart that changes. I was speaking to a young man after church, after the first service. Listen, this is not, listen, don't misunderstand me. It's not about perfection, but it is about the direction of your life. That you change the direction. Uh, I use the analogy of uh, the moving sidewalks. You've been in the airport, those moving sidewalks. Uh, and you step on them and they're going, and you look like you're running real fast, you know. And you get on one of those. Listen to me, everyone in this room this morning, you've been born on a moving sidewalk headed towards hell. We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. All of us are born on a moving sidewalk toward his, headed towards death and hell. Now, as we're on that sidewalk, can we occasionally step off and do some good things? Saul did some good things occasionally. Do unbelievers, do non-believers sometimes do some good things? Yes, but I'll tell you this. The overall trajectory of their life is away from Christ and towards hell. Until what happens? Until at some point in their life, God shines the light of the gospel in their heart and they see the depth of their own sin and they see the beauty of Jesus and guess what they do? They step off that moving sidewalk by faith and repentance and they change the direction. Now they're on a moving sidewalk towards heaven and towards Christ. Now as we're on this moving sidewalk headed towards Christ, can we occasionally step off and do some sinful knuckle-headed things? Yes, we can. But listen to me the overall trajectory of our life will now be towards Christ. You want to know, this is a good, now listen to me, I'm here to tell you there's only two people who know your condition, you and God. I wish I could give you a little spiritual litmus test. There is no test. But I will tell you, if you truly know Christ, there will be true, genuine faith. There will be repentance. There will be change the overall trajectory of your life. You want, a good, you want a good way to do this, though? I will tell people, ask if you're married, ask your spouse. Ask them this, do you see Christ changing me? Do you see Christ changing me? Ask them twice a year at the very minimum. Do you see Christ changing me? We are a people. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Repentance, and then that final mark, if you're looking for the third, it's perseverance. True believers will persevere to the end. They'll persevere to the end. Perseverance of the saints. A lot of people talk about eternal security of the believer. I believe in the eternal security of the believer, but I prefer to call it the perseverance of the saints. That as Jesus said in John chapter six, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will certainly not cast, but I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. If you have true belief, if you have true belief and you've repented of your sins, 
you need to understand this morning, you are eternally secure. But listen to me, on the other side of that, those promises of security and perseverance are given to true believers. If there's no true belief, if there's no repentance, there's no assurance. And you need to do some serious spiritual evaluation in your life because listen to me. If you don't trust in Christ and come under his shed blood, you're gonna face the wrath of God on your own. And you don't wanna be there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. God, I am so grateful that you don't pull any punches, but you show us in neon lights that judgment is coming. And just because you haven't judged today doesn't mean you will not judge. And I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they've never Maybe they've got a lot of outward expressions of faith. Maybe they, with their words, they profess Christ, but they know in their heart there's never been true, genuine faith, confession of sin, dealing directly with you without excuse and falling upon the grace and the mercy of Christ. There's never been true repentance, a change in direction. They just added you to the other stuff of their life, set you up as another idol, but they've never truly submitted to you as Lord and changed the direction of their life. And they're not persevering God, convict them. Draw them to yourself. God, help all of us to be a people who persevere, who have a repentant heart, who are confessing sin and going to you, and you're changing us and molding us into the image of Christ. We want to be a people who display your glory. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.